Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall hear about concerns being weighed in the debate over returning to in-person learning as the beginning of the school year gets underway. Clips today come from All In with Chris Hayes, Democracy Now!, The Intercept, The Tom Hartman Program, The David Pakman Show, On the Media, and Jacobin Radio Weekends. Countries all over the world have successfully reopened their schools. Denmark was the first country in Europe to do so, reopening all their primary schools all the way back on April 20th. In Wuhan, the first epicenter of the virus, schools started reopening at the end of April. In Singapore, schools reopened in the beginning of June, and they have even restarted some extracurricular activities. Now, of course, this hasn't all gone smoothly everywhere. Reopening's hard. There have been plenty of places where the virus flared up and they had to close schools again. But these countries who've struggled with the coronavirus prove it is possible. And we all desperately need American schools to reopen. Pediatricians, parents, educators, basically anyone who deals with kids, they all agree it should be a priority at every level of government and for all of American society to get full-time in-person school open again in the fall. But right now, that is looking unlikely because we have the worst coronavirus response in the world. That has not stopped the president. He is now trying to reopen schools the exact same way he tried to reopen the economy, despite the fact that his push to reopen the economy created the disastrous and catastrophic conditions we are in now, which is what makes the school problem so difficult to solve. Remember what everyone said when we were locked down on this show night after night after night? We needed to use that time to suppress the virus and put infrastructure in place, testing and tracing and PPE and all sorts of stuff to keep it from coming back. We did none of those things. And then the CDC issued guidelines to the states about how to reopen safely and slowly. But the president pushed states to ignore those guidelines, which many of them did. And they reopened too early. And now, now what do we have? We have a curve that looks like this. Unlike anywhere else in the world, the virus is on a huge upward spike in this country. We are setting records with the number of cases nearly every day. There are massive outbreaks in Arizona and Florida and Texas and South Carolina and Alabama. New cases are increasing in 38 U.S. states and territories. We've already seen more cases and more deaths than anywhere else in the world. All the while, the president has been focused on one thing, his reelection. And his reelection, he thinks, depends on economic growth and getting back to normal. And so the president and his administration and the Republicans who will go along with whatever he does are out pushing the message so hard that things are good and we are moving in the right direction, but it is so preposterous that even Trump TV is not buying it. Are you better off now than you were before? And the answer mm. undoubtedly is yes. And that strikes it, true Hogan, in New really and across this country. But with the pandemic, now the, you know, you know that the growth is not there. You know the unemployment's still 11%. So you can't really say you're better off than you were three years ago because of, at the very least, the pandemic. So you can't really oh, say that, right? No, no, absolutely. Of course you can say that. God bless you, Brian Kilmeade. You can't, I mean, there's 130,000 people dead and billions unemployed. And they can't, I mean, the country is a burning garbage fire. So I think it's a little hard to sell that message, right? Instead of dealing with the virus and the public health crisis, the president pushed everyone to reopen to get the economy restarted, right? So that the jobs could come back and he could get his growth and he could be reluctant. And now here we are. And he is doing the same thing with schools right now. There are a number, a long list of problems that have to be solved in order to open schools safely. The president is incapable of solving them. 
He just wants them open so that people can go back to work and so things can be normal so he can get reelected. Earlier this week, he tweeted in all caps, schools must open in the fall. He threatened to cut off funding if they do not reopen. Today, once again, he said he disagrees with the CDC guidelines, this time for the schools. He said he will be meeting with them. Now, we can only assume to push the CDC to change their actual scientific guidelines. Here's how Vice President Mike Pence, the head of the coronavirus task force, defended that today. I think uh, what you will see in the coming days, what you heard from Dr. Redfield yesterday at the summit and again today is very consistent uh, with the president's objective and the concerns that he's raised. We, we don't want uh, the guidance from CDC to be a reason why schools don't open. So if I got that right, we don't want the guidance from the nation's top health protection agency about how to stay safe in a pandemic to be the reason why we don't send our kids to school while we are suffering from the worst outbreak in the world. So the president will tell them to change the guidance. And again, it's not the first time he did that, just like he did back in April and May when the CDC released reopening guidance he did not like, just like he pressured governors to ignore that guidance given by his own administration reopen, just like he pushed the CDC to edit their guidance for reopening churches. And now he's not happy with CDC's guidance on school. So what do you think is going to happen? Look, the last person in the world you can trust right now with the safety of your kids is Donald Trump. Not only because he's willing to change or ignore scientific guidelines about how to keep Americans safe, or because he's threatening to cut off funds for schools when what they need is a massive amount of money to afford all the changes needed to make it safe to bring back students, but also because the best laid plans are not going to survive first contact with an outbreak. This is the fundamental problem for everything right now, from elementary school to the MBA. Other countries suppress the virus and have kept it suppressed. We never did that. And now we're trying to figure out how to live in a burning building, as opposed to putting the fire out. It's not going to work. As the world and the United States shatter the daily records of COVID-19 infections, President Trump and Education Secretary Betsy DeVos are continuing to push for public schools to reopen in the fall, despite concerns from educators and public health officials. They've also vowed to cut off federal funding for public schools that do not reopen. DeVos is a longtime advocate for privatizing the public school system. In an interview Sunday, CNN's Dana Bash questioned DeVos about the Trump administration how it could safely reopen schools amidst the pandemic. You're the secretary of of education. You're asking students to go back. So why do you not have guidance on what a school should do just weeks before you want those schools to reopen? And what happens if it faces an outbreak? You know, there's really good examples that have uh, been utilized in the private sector and in and elsewhere, also with frontline workers and hospitals. And all of that data and all of that information and all of those examples can be referenced I, not, by school okay, leaders. But I'm not hearing who have, a plan who have from the, the Department of Education. Do you have a plan but for, the, for the, what the students the and plan, what schools should do? So, 
schools should do what's right on the ground at that time for their students and for their situation. There is no one uniform approach that we can take or should take nationwide. But you are arguing over and over that they should handle this on a local level. But at the same time, as the Secretary of Education, you are trying to, to push them to do a one-size-fits-all approach, which is go back and reopen schools. You can't have it both ways. I am urging all schools to be re to open and to be providing their students a full-time education. Democratic Congresswoman Ayanna Pressley of Massachusetts tweeted in response to DeVos, quote, you have no plan. I wouldn't trust you to care for a house plant, let alone my child, she said. This comes as the National Education Association, American Federation of Teachers, are calling on Congress for more funds to help schools to purchase personal protective equipment, as well as new ventilation systems and cleaning equipment. A new study from the Kaiser Family Foundation finds nearly one and a half million teachers are at risk of serious illness if infected with COVID-19. In Arizona, Three teachers who shared a summer classroom at a school all contracted coronavirus last month. One of them, Kimberly Chavez-Lopez-Bird, died at the age of 61. Last week, Trump lashed out at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, saying the CDC's guidelines on safely reopening schools was very tough and expensive. Hours later, the CDC announced it would revise its guidelines, which call for staggered scheduling, new seating arrangements to encourage social distancing, the use of face coverings and the closing of communal spaces. We hope that most schools are going to be open. We don't want people to make political statements or do it for political reasons. I think it's going to be good for them politically, so they keep the schools closed. No way. So we're very much going to put pressure on uh, governors and everybody else to open the schools, to get them open. And uh, it's very important. It's very important for our country. It's very important for the well-being of the student and the parents. So we're going to be putting a lot of pressure on open your schools in the fall. For more on all of this, we're joined by Dr. Lena Wen, emergency physician, public health professor at George Washington University. She previously served as Baltimore's health commissioner. She's also a contributing columnist for The Washington Post. Her recent piece is headlined, If Trump Wants to Reopen Schools, Here's What His Administration Needs to Do. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Dr. Wen. What does Trump have to do? What is the Trump administration not doing as it demands all schools reopen and that they will cut federal funding for public schools if they don't. Well, this is the thing. I, I agree, and I think every American agrees with the goal of reopening schools, just as we would agree with the goal of reopening the economy. The key, though, is we need to be doing this safely. In fact, we've already seen what happens when we use shortcuts and uh, go against public health guidance in reopening. We're now seeing these massive surges occurring in multiple parts of the country. And frankly, it's very strange when you hear that, well, if we cannot meet these guidelines that are evidence-based, so the answer is to change the guidelines. That's not right. It should be the opposite. If we're unable to meet the guidelines for safe reopening, then we need to put in the hard work 
so that we can actually meet these guidelines and ensure the safety of our students and teachers and staff and their families. It's not to go back and change the guidelines, it's to do the work. And to your point, the single most important thing that we can do right now in order to ensure safe reopening of schools in the fall is to reduce the level of coronavirus in the communities. Because there's no way that you can keep a school safe from coronavirus if the virus is raging out of control where the school is in the community. We have multiple parts of the country where one in a hundred people have COVID-19. So if you have a school of a thousand people on day one, you're going to have 10 people in that school who have COVID and don't know that they have it. That's outbreaks that's going to happen on day one. And so we as a society need to think through our priorities. If the priority, if the goal is to reopen schools in the fall, maybe we should keep bars and restaurants and nightclubs closed in the summer. I want to turn to the superintendent of schools for Fairfax County in North Virginia, one of the largest school districts in the country. The district plans to have students return to schools just two days a week and have remote learning the rest of the week. He explained to CNN how schools in his area were planning to reopen in the fall and was viciously attacked by Betsy DeVos. So you're in a classroom now where we've spaced apart a desk at six feet. We're going to have PPE for all of our teachers and students, and we're going to have uh, a return to school in a new normal. Well, COVID doesn't uh, discriminate based on wealth or poverty. COVID hits all of us, and the guidelines for six feet social distancing simply mean that you can't put every kid back in a school with the existing square footage footprint. It's just that simple. We're the size of five pentagons. You would need another five pentagons of space to be able to safely accommodate all of the students in Fairfax County. So, Public Dr. Schools. Wen, that's the superintendent of the Fairfax schools. The education secretary, Betsy DeVos, attacked him uh, in her news conference last week, attacked his plan. Talk about what it means to reopen when increasingly— Tests are not available, as we see in places like Texas and Arizona. People are waiting 10 hours online to get a test. President Trump has signaled he doesn't—he wants fewer tests because thinks, he thinks it makes him look bad. How you have a sane public health-based program where you can't figure out who's sick, and then people, once again, do not have enough access to personal protective gear. Yeah, so I've spoken to school administrators and teachers across the country who are trying their best. I mean, they are balancing some incredibly complex factors, including they're trying to follow the CDC guidelines for physical distancing and for PPE, for ventilation. They're also trying to take into account the needs of students with special needs who may depend on the school for lunch and may depend on the school for a place for safety, combined with the real health risks of students and teachers and their family members. They're trying their best. And really, what the Trump administration should be doing is to support them in this, not shame them or threaten them with lots of funding. All of these things, like changing bus routes, having schools be open different hours, spacing out these desks, buying new equipment, that all will cost funding. And we really should be putting in the work and putting in the resources to help schools reopen. And also, you mentioned about testing. I can't believe that it's now July and we're still talking about the need for a national strategy around testing. 
When we look at other countries that have been successful in suppressing the level of COVID-19, they have one thing in common, which is that they have a national coordinated strategy. They don't just let different regions and different states and cities figure it out on their own. They don't have different areas compete against one another for things like masks and other PPE. And I also cannot believe that we are at this point again. Back in March, you and I talked about how doctors and nurses on the front lines don't have enough masks and gowns and are begging their friends over social media in order to try to get that extra mask so that they don't get infected from their patients. I can't believe that we're facing the same situation once again. And this all comes from not having a national strategy and also, unfortunately, having this really confused and mixed messaging coming out from this White House that instead of using science and evidence to make their decisions, they're making it based on ideology and partisanship. And that has politics has no role in a public health response. educators, for our students, and then for all of the families in this community that we return home to. Well, we came here because this is DCPS. This is a headquarters. We're not invited to the table to make the decisions that are going to impact us way more than the people who sit in this building, but they're actually not even sitting in this building because they're going to work from home. Nobody wants more than any of us to be back in brick and mortar and teaching the kids because that's how they learn best. But at what cost? We have families. We have multi-generational homes in some cases. Like, everyone in the community is at risk when schools open. We asked, what's the situation with nurses? Because there have been schools, um, schools with no nurses. And we asked, and they said it's going to be normal staffing. Is it acceptable to have no nurse in a school during a pandemic? No. There's so many schools that's without COVID did not have soap and toilet paper. How do you promise us you're gonna have the correct amount of PPE for us and you don't even have soap for the kids to wash their hands? Don't plan for us, plan with us so that we know how to come back to school in a safe, appropriate manner. And so we wanted to send a strong message, a striking message to the mayor. This is too important, lives are at stake and we're not gonna back down. So we talk about going hybrid. That means two days out of the week or three days or four days. Let me just tell you my reality. I am at home. I care for my 75-year-old mother who has underlying health conditions. It is unrealistic. I think it's unhealthy and unwise. In 2011, while creating papers during a planning period, I had a heart attack in my classroom. My students saw me wheeled out of my room on a stretcher in the middle of a transition. The risk of death from COVID is greater for people with hearts like mine. More likely that my students would again see me rolled out of my room on a stretcher, although this time I might not come back. There's no way that they have not done some sort of projection of how many people will get sick and how many people will die if we reopen the building. I'm dying to know what that number is um, because it, it can't be zero. I don't want to teach on the spring. With pre-K children, 
I mean, they're in a window like they're no camera like this. They're, they're not focused. It is a it is a horrible situation. But I'd rather have them in that situation than them to be dead. If there's one child, one teacher, one custodian, one administrator that loses their life, that is one too many. And the decision keeps getting delayed. Um, all we can hope for is that we will have direction and that direction will be the right choice, which is 100% virtual until it's safe. Today's action is highlighting some of the current safety concerns that existed in our buildings um, before the pandemic. In addition to the extra precautions we would need to be safe in a pandemic, we have all these other baseline concerns that have not been addressed for years. And I think unfortunately, or fortunately, the pandemic has brought to light a lot of these inequities and our kids deserve a lot better than they've been getting. Specifically for Ward 8 schools, because they don't have HVAC systems, and we have uh, poor ventilation. We already lack soap, hand sanitizer, paper towel on a steady basis. So the, all those deficits are gonna be exacerbated because of COVID-19. So here alone, their ventilation system is very poor. Classrooms don't have functional AC or heating. The water fountains don't work. Their bathroom staff and students are without soap and paper towels, and there are no touch-free soap or paper towel dispensers at this particular school. I believe we are going to the Chancellor's house. I just hope he hears us and hears our concerns and hears our care is genuine and that he makes a choice that supports this community. He speaks a lot about wanting trust with the teachers, and the only way to build that is through genuine collaboration. Chancellor Farabee, there should be no reason why teachers have to come to your doorstep. You should be coming to us. Why aren't we at the table? You go to ill-prepared buildings first and try it out. You go into a building with no PPE. You are not the one that is going to teach in a middle school with windows that do not open. I feel like I'm trying to convince you that our lives are worth living. Only when it is safe will you go into work. Only when it's safe, we will then go to work. Come down and speak to us. Thank you. These are basic questions, not technical ones. How will we ensure that we have the necessary PPE? Who's gonna pay for it? How will we ensure social distancing occurs outside the classroom? Are teachers expected to balance the requirements of teaching both in person and online simultaneously? What if we have pre-existing conditions and health risks? What if we are taking care of those who are most at risk for COVID? We have no answers to the most basic, straightforward questions, despite having asked them in every form we could think of. Only when it's safe! Only when it's safe! Hey! Only when it's safe! The WTU speaks on behalf of teachers and you're telling the WTU what you're gonna do instead of actually having a conversation because that shows people respect. We're going to have to take up the mantle ourselves. This is the most galvanized I've felt or seen the union maybe ever. Feels good. We do have permission 
uh, yesterday from our larger umbrella union, uh, American Federation of Teachers, to strike. And the president of our local uh, union says we'll pay the fine. It's not a big deal. We've done it before. And what's our number one rule for staying safe during opening group? All together now. We keep our hands and feet inside our own square at all times. I'm here to demonstrate a little bit of what it might look like to have a social distancing classroom under the protocols that DCPS teachers were sent by Chancellor Farabee and the mayor so far. The itsy bitsy spider Jackie legs back in your square went up the spout again. Wasn't that fun? The mayor had said she's going to announce on Friday whether or not you're going to be doing hybrid or distance learning. Instead, she decided to do a press conference this morning. Good morning, everyone. I'm Muriel Bowser. I'm the mayor of Washington, D.C. She had her people announce that the first term would be distance only. We are moving forward with an all-virtual start to the school year until November 6th. Which is what we wanted. And we're glad that we won that. What we're not glad about is that, one, we were not notified. We're still not being communicated with. How much did the teachers union clear desire not to go back to school right away play into this decision? We have won the first term of distance only, but it's only the beginning. Uh, they still haven't given tech to our students one-to-one. -one. We're gonna keep fighting for that. And then of course we're gonna fight about the conditions it will take and what it will take to return in November, should that even be a possibility. I think we can agree that pretty much all news is biased in some way, and we are really upfront about that. And the bias can come from individual reporters, the perspective of the editors in charge of prioritizing and assigning stories, the hiring practices of the institution, and even the business model under which a media outlet is operating. But with all the myriad ways that bias can seep in, the result is basically the same, and the bias tends to spread itself across the ideological spectrum. And trusting anyone who promises to be unbiased is a fool's errand. But the next best thing is to get a really clear picture of how the bias ends up playing out in real-life scenarios, and that is where Ground News comes in. Ground News is a new app that provides readers with objective data about the underlying political bias in all published news stories, and it's the first-ever news comparison platform. Ground News collects data from over 50,000 news sources and runs real-time media bias tracking. So for every story you read, you can compare how reporting differs across sources with different political biases. You can get the perspective you're used to, and with a single tap, see the alternative perspectives you don't usually get. If you want to learn more and try it for yourself, I recommend it. Just head to ground.news/best and enter the code BEST to get one month free of Ground News Pro. As an exclusive limited-time offer, listeners of Best of the Left will get 20% off Ground News Premium Membership. So, what are you waiting for? Start judging the truth for yourself today. Israel, it's in the New York Times, 
On the front page, in fact, when COVID subsided, Israel reopened its schools. It didn't go well. And they say, as the United States and other, this is uh, Isabel Kirshner and Pam Bullock. As the United States and other countries anxiously consider how to reopen schools, Israel, one of the first countries to do so, illustrates the dangers. The Israeli government invited the entire student body back in late May. Within days, infections were reported at a Jerusalem high school, which quickly mushroomed into the largest outbreak in a single school in Israel, possibly possibly the largest outbreak in a single school in the world. The virus rippled out to the students' homes and then to other schools and other neighborhoods, ultimately infecting hundreds of students, teachers, and relatives. Other outbreaks forced hundreds of schools to close. Across the country, tens of thousands of students and teachers were quarantined. Israel's advice for other countries? They definitely should not do what we have done, says Ellie Waxman, a professor at the Weizmann Institute of Science and chairman of the team advising Israel's National Security Council on the pandemic. Quote, speaking of uh, Israel's experiment with reopening their schools, it was a major failure. And this is a country that had largely squashed the virus. We had a, we've had a couple of callers from Israel in the last few weeks talking about how, well, life seems to be getting back to normal. I mean, people are wearing masks and stuff, but, you know, we're reopening restaurants and things and the schools are reopening. Well, apparently not so, not so fast, right? They thought they had it under control. And this is, this is popping up, by the way, in countries, you know, South Korea, the entire country in the neighborhood of 300 deaths. Total. Right? We're at 155,000. They're 51 million people. You know, one-sixth the size of the United States, they have 300 deaths. But now they're saying, oh, wait a minute, we're starting to get a little, you know, the hot spots are popping back up. This virus is insanely tenacious. It's insanely strong. It's very, very potent. And it's something that we're going to have to deal with and live with for a long, long time. The experiment of sending kids back to school during a raging hundred year pandemic by this administration has failed and it has failed very poorly. And I'm not pleased to see this. And to be clear, I wish it were possible to send kids back to school safely right now. It's become very popular among some on the right to say the left wants to hurt businesses. The left wants to hurt education. The left wants uh, the left doesn't care about people's emotional health all because they want to close, close, close in order to hurt Donald Trump. I don't deny for a second that there are tangible benefits, intangible benefits and psychological benefits to getting kids back to school. I don't deny that many parents can't get back to work unless their kids are back in school. So I get it. The considerations are economic. They're emotional. They're wide ranging. When you have 50,000 cases a day. 1400 deaths a day. And we've already debunked the false notion that kids can't catch the disease or spread the disease. It just doesn't pass the sniff test that this would work. And case in point, a Georgia second grader tested positive on day one back in school. By day two, the classroom was closed. The teacher and students were quarantined for two weeks and out of school. And there are many of these examples. Two hundred and sixty employees either tested positive or were exposed in Gwinnett County Public Schools in Georgia. That's Georgia's largest school district. Hours after the first day in an Indiana district last week, 
the county health department notified Greenfield Central Junior High that a student who had been in a bunch of classrooms all over the school in contact with teachers and students helped uh, um, was helping students. I don't remember the, the exact details was all over the school, tested positive for coronavirus and once again caused a mass quarantine of 14 days for everybody that they had been in touch with. We saw what happened in Israel where they successfully dealt with the virus, crushed the curve. I mean, just obliterated it, obliterated the curve, opened schools, and then things went backwards very, very quickly. So it's not inconceivable that states uh, could open schools. Some states could open schools safely, maybe, but a lot has to happen in order to do that. First and foremost, when we were down to 20,000 cases a day, every state started opening. That was not the time to actually start opening as aggressively as happened. Number two, I know that it's August, but we still don't have enough testing or fast enough testing. The testing is falling behind the viral spread. When we talk about how much we test relative to other countries, remember that at this point, circumstances are so different in countries that in order to keep up with our level of spread, we need dramatically more testing and we need dramatically faster testing. People are often not hearing back for days, five to seven days in some cases. A travel blogger I know waited 20 days for his test results, got them the day before he was going to a different state. This is the same issue we've been talking about for a long time. When it comes to lots of types of businesses and organizations and certainly schools where people are even more crowded together for hours all day, there's not an easy answer. I, I'm not pretending this is simple. I get all of the reasons why we would want to open schools. But what we've seen so far, we have to be guided by the data, tells me the risks exceed the possible rewards. By the spring semester, early 2021, we might have both more effective treatments and vaccines that are increasingly inoculating people. So to me, that says let's do online in the fall. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying let's do it online. Let's suffer through it. My mom is a college professor. Up until two days ago, they were planning on allowing professors to teach in person if they wanted to. Now, my mom had already decided to go fully remote, but because of what's happening now in Massachusetts, which, by the way, is nothing compared to what's going on in some states, her university decided we're doing all remote. It sucks, but it makes sense. It's a mess. It's not political. Masks should be worn. It's not political. It's too early to open a lot of things. It's not political. I'm so glad I'm not in a position of having to send kids to school or not and make decisions about where they should be. I don't envy the parents. I don't envy the teachers or the administrators. I'm not pretending it's easy. I get it. There's not a simple answer, but it's increasingly clear that the safe answer is you've got to do online in the fall. And increasingly, it seems more and more states are going in that direction. As an independent production that depends on the direct financial support of the audience, Best of the Left is as vulnerable as everyone else in this time of economic uncertainty. When people can't go to work or get laid off, non-essential expenses are the first to go. We perfectly understand that. So if you can support the show directly on Patreon, that would be amazing and fantastic, and we thank you for that. But there is also a way you can support the show without it costing you any money. So if you're doing any shopping from the big box store in the sky, you can use our affiliate link and we'll get a cut of the price from everything you purchase. Our affiliate links 
for the US, UK, and Canadian stores are in the show notes on our website and on the device you're using to listen right now. If you use our link and you're taken to either the homepage or our Alexa skill page, then you have done it right. There's nothing additional you need to do, and we will benefit from the shopping you do after that. If you take just a moment to bookmark our link to your country's store on your browser, or even delete the mobile app on your phone and add that link as a button in its place, you can enormously help us get through this health and economic crisis just by doing your regular online shopping. Thanks so much for your support. About the pandemic, wouldn't it be great if, as former CNBC host and current director of Trump's National Economic Council, Larry Kudlow, declared, it was all over? Presidential leadership came swiftly and effectively with an extraordinary rescue for health and safety to successfully fight the COVID virus. After a spring semester held mostly over Zoom, many of the nation's colleges and universities have reopened with precautions for the fall. Today, Cal revealed plans for undergrads. University is using a hybrid model with large lectures provided remotely. Potential guidelines for UC Berkeley students living on campus this coming fall. Only a limited number of students would be allowed to live in dorms on the campus. The University of Arizona is helping contain the coronavirus pandemic by using Using a special new app that tracks students. These precautions are a gesture toward sensible public health decision making, but they've so far failed to protect against some predictable co ed behavior. UNC issued a campus wide alert reporting new clusters. Texas AM ordered chapter wide quarantines for two sororities, and a fraternity house at Georgia Tech is on lockdown after at least two dozen tested positive. At the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, over 500 cases. At the University of Missouri in Columbia, over 200. These infections not only imperil the students, they also threaten their institution's blue-collar workers and their parents and grandparents and communities. Scott Galloway is professor of marketing at NYU Stern School of Business and co-host of the podcast Pivot. I asked him, why the decision to open the doors? Money. (laughs) If you're a liberal arts private school or even a public school and you get say between 30 and 50,000 in tuition let's say you get half of that up front and you have 20,000 students i mean you're literally expecting in some instances 3 4 500 million dollars to roll in in a two week period in the late summer and then all of a sudden you wake up and you're facing potentially 10 30 50% reduction in that cash flow when you see these university presidents making strident statements around welcoming students back to campus i think that's latin for parents please send in your tuition checks And in the face of all of this, what kind of school suffers the least and what kind the most? So let's take Princeton, Harvard, and Stanford. Princeton has the largest endowment per student. Harvard has the largest endowment just by gross tonnage, 40 billion. And I think Stanford is in the top five. So if there's three schools that should have the resources to figure this out, testing every day, protocols, reconfigure the dorms, it's these three universities. And despite these resources, what they've decided is they're going all remote. And the reason why they're going all remote is, again, because they have the most resources. And that is they're not worried about a short-term hit to their balance sheet, which indicates that the companies that aren't going remote feel more financial pressure to stay open. You contrasted the Ivies with a publicly funded school like Cal State and suggested that 
those schools also have more flexibility than the ones in the middle. That's right. There's the guys at the top that have a lot of resources and can afford to stay closed and be remote, and they have amazing brands. And by the way, the 20% of students who stay, they're not going to show up at Harvard this fall. Harvard will have no problem filling those seats with their waiting list that consists of 95% of the people who applied and didn't get in. So they're fine. They're bulletproof. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you mentioned Cal State, half a million students, $7,000 tuition in-state, $17,000 out-of-state, about 80% are commuters. So the value proposition there isn't a leafy college football game experience. The value proposition is some certification, some education at a really good price. That largely remains intact in a period of COVID. And as a result, they were one of the first to announce they're going all online. They have the confidence to say, look, we're going to focus totally on online learning. We're going to shut this down for this semester. And we look forward to welcoming you back, hopefully, in spring and January or February. The ones in the middle are in a more difficult spot that has led them down this rabbit hole of what I would call incremental bad decisions. Are there data that show enrollments have, in fact, fallen? According to the surveys you read, you know, over half of kids, freshman kids, say they would prefer an all-remote experience. I wonder what the number one preference is among parents of freshmen. (laughs) We should be careful not to conflate the calculus around deciding what we're going to do with K-12 and higher ed. When you're talking about the decision to send kids back to school with K-12, through you're talking about developmental disability, you're talking about economic strain, you're talking about a single mother who can't go to work, nutrition, you're talking about the collapse of households. A 19-year-old stuck at home that can't return to Tulane for his or her sophomore year is a nuisance, not a tragedy. And I think the media portrays it as a tragedy because it's happening to wealthy households. You've suggested that we were kind of headed in this direction anyway with regard to higher education. Well, just to use a pandemic as a metaphor, there's several comorbidities across higher education, and this has <laughs> been the opportunistic infection that may kill a bunch of them. And that is just demographically, population growth among college-age kids has either been flat or down in most states. So there's just fewer consumers. Two, we've been raising prices faster than inflation without any underlying increase in quality or innovation. So whenever you raise prices faster than inflation, you make yourself vulnerable, especially if the product isn't very strong. Think about technology that every year improves dramatically. Your computer, your browsers, the apps use, dramatically different. And the price goes down every year. Education is the opposite of technology. Less for more is the way you would describe education (laughs) over the last 40 years. And we've reached a tipping point. After talking to a bunch of leadership at the what I'll call the elite universities, the MITs, the Browns, the Dartmouths of the world, I'm now convinced they'll double down on their exclusivity. They no longer see themselves as public servants. They see themselves as luxury brands, and their key attribute is their scarcity. They're essentially hedge funds educating very wealthy kids and some freakishly remarkable kids from middle and lower income households such that they can wipe Vaseline over the fact that they've totally lost the script. They're not about education. They're about positioning themselves as luxury brands. You've said that the ultimate vehicle for a luxury item is to massively and artificially constrain supply. Harvard had more people in the past, but now they celebrate the fact that each year they're able to reject more. At NYU, our dean will stand up and say we rejected 88% of our applicants, and people see that as a good thing. I would argue it's tantamount to a housing shelter bragging that it turned away nine and 10 people who showed up last night. I don't think it's Mm. anything to be proud of. Spring used to be a nervous, but an exciting time to see where you were going to college. 
Now it's become the Hunger Games, where you have to call on every contact. And then if you're lucky enough to get into a school, you have to sit down and plan out how the household is going to take on that level of debt. The real value here is the certification. The $380,000 that Yale is going to cost you, that value is recognized when you get in. And that is, for the rest of your life, you'll have this branding that says you got into one of the world's most elite, exclusive clubs. Just look at influence. Only a third of America has a college degree. Only 10% has a graduate degree. But look at the economy, culture, media, the most powerful cohorts in America. What is it, 90, 98% have a college degree? You say the cruel truth of what pretends to be a meritocracy is a caste system in that your degree largely indicates your lifetime earnings. The angle of the cannon you're shot out of is not only whether or not you're getting a college degree, but where you're getting that college degree. And then the question is, well, who gets shot into this world of amazing prosperity? And it's generally two cohorts. The first is the children of wealthy people. If you come from the top 1%, you're 77 times more likely to get into an elite university. If you come from the other 99%, 88% of kids from households in the upper quintile go to college. In the lowest quintile, it's 8%. You just have an entirely different prospect of not only going to college, but going to a great college when you have access to what I'll call the industrialized test prep complex where your dad might know somebody. I see it happen personally. Most of my friends are financially successful they call me because they might think I have some pull at one of the universities I'm affiliated with. And you can just see how kind of the wheel spins. Mm -hmm. There is a second cohort, and it's what I would call freakishly remarkable 15 to 17-year-olds. And here's the thing. America needs to fall back in love with its unremarkables. I can prove that 99% of our children are not in the top 1%. To be fair, universities have done a great job reaching into lower-income communities and finding remarkable kids. But the test mm -hmm. of a society and the role of higher ed is not finding remarkable kids and making them billionaires instead of millionaires. It's what we do with our unremarkables. And the U.S. higher ed, I would argue World War II to 2000, used to be a place where the son of a single immigrant mother who lived and died as secretary got to go to UCLA for total tuition for $4,000, then to graduate school at Berkeley for a total tuition of $5,000, and then go on to be a productive citizen and have remarkable opportunities and have the chance to come on public radio and talk about higher education, yours <laughs> truly. That's not happening any longer, and it's a national tragedy. So what happens next? Well, I think where we're headed is the following. I think the truly elite universities are going to double down on their exclusivity. They're going to look, smell, and feel the same. They'll use technology to enhance their offering, but it's not going to be core. I think the opportunity is for some of the great uh, state systems, Ohio State, University of Texas is 200,000 kids, University of California is a quarter of a million kids, Cal State is half a million, to embrace small and big tech. And if you take 50% of your classes online, and another dirty secret of academia is about 50% of our classes probably could be online without a huge erosion in value. But if you take 50% of the classes and put them online, you've effectively doubled the size of the campus, doubled the capacity. So... Good kids, not just remarkable kids, have an opportunity to get a remarkable education at a much lower price. But they won't be credentialed if the school's not fancy. 
Yeah, I think the degree from UCLA in the 80s may not have the same level of prestige as it does now, but I still think you can get a great job. I still got a job at Morgan Stanley. I still got into graduate school when UCLA was letting in 60% of its applicants. It's now 13%. (laughs) I think this erosion in brand value is BS. They are not in the business of education. They're not in the business of advancing our society. They're in the business of being alternative investment hedge funds. Stanford, Stanford just decided because of quote-unquote financial pressure to shut several sports teams down. And the question is, well, why don't you use part of your $35 billion endowment? And they said, we don't have access to our endowment because we might have capital calls from the commitments we've made to private equity funds that we're investing our endowment in. What's a capital call? So uh, an organization like Stanford, who has an endowment of $35 billion and a huge team of well-compensated investment managers charged with increasing it, they make investments in private equity funds or hedge funds that will go out and buy companies, buy stocks, and they commit to, say, a billion dollars. And then over the course of the next three, five years, that private equity fund will say, OK, we need the money, and they call it or draw it down. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you get a capital call, you're supposed to send in your money. Nearly every decision among university leadership, I believe, over the last two decades has been with one goal, and that is to reduce our accountability and increase our compensation. And the net effect of that is there has been a transfer of about $1.5 trillion in wealth from middle-income and middle-class households to universities and tenured faculty. The transfer has to stop. We need a reckoning. We need to dramatically lower costs and dramatically increase supply. We need to let technology set us on a path where we can substantially decrease the cost of delivering education over the next decade. So when you say embrace big tech and small... It's everything from handheld technologies from Apple to CRM from Salesforce to Mm -hmm. some of the existing tech out there to Zoom to Squadcast. You're going to see an explosion in tools uh, focused on higher learning. There's going to be more money invested in ed tech over the next 24 months than there has been over the last 24 years. I think that's a social good. I think that's an investment worth making. The way I would summarize the issue here is I teach 160 kids, typically in the fall, my brand strategy course. It's $7,000. Because we're going online, they've increased the capacity And I'm now teaching 280 kids starting in three weeks. It'll be all online. And it'll still be $7,000. That's exactly right. As a matter of fact, they've increased tuition 3.5%. So think of it this way. Over 12 nights of Zoom, NYU is going to charge these 280 kids approximately $2.1 million. Pfizer just came out with a drug to treat muscular atrophy that costs $2.1 million for a treatment. And I started thinking, okay, which is worse? preying on someone at the most vulnerable point of their life and asking them to figure out a way to give you $2 million to help with their disability? Or is it preying on the hopes and dreams of middle-class households spread across 280 of those households and putting them $7,000 more in debt such that they can have access to a better life? And I think the answer is yes. Which is more morally corrupt? Yes. I think we have to take a hard look at what this means in terms of a transfer of wealth from middle-income households to universities. It's gone on too long, and the reckoning is overdue. Oftentimes when we hear about 
businesses or schools prematurely opening in the United States amid the coronavirus pandemic, where, let me remind you, we are seeing a surge of active coronavirus cases throughout the country. We think of Republicans, right? I think that that's the narrative that we've seen in the mainstream press. Oh, here's a GOP lawmaker. Oh, look how callous he is. They want to reopen schools. It's so dangerous for teachers. And uh, to be clear, teachers unions do not want to open because it's premature and we have not handled coronavirus appropriately. But there are some people on, I don't want to say the left, but some Democrats, some mainstream Democrats who are very open about their support of reopening schools. One of them is a reporter with the New York Times. She is the person who started the 1619 project at the New York Times. And so Nicole Hannah-Jones tweeted the following. The discussion has grown completely hyperbolic to the point that it's virtually impossible to have on here. People are going to work every day in this city to act as if it's immoral to even have the conversation of how to open schools with a 1% infection rate is just. And so she's minimizing the infection rate. But when you consider that 1% of a densely populated city, for instance, is a high number of people, like you can understand why that's a callous statement. And again, we have not really handled this virus appropriately. Uh, that's why we're seeing these surges throughout the country. And by the way, this is still the first wave. We haven't handled the first wave of coronavirus. There's a second wave expected to come in the fall. So understandably, teachers unions are like, uh, no, kids don't live in a vacuum. We'd have to educate them. And that puts our lives at risk. It puts our families' lives at risk. And there is some newer reporting, newer data indicating that some children really do suffer serious consequences from this virus. One of the more recent studies showed that some students develop neurological problems as a result of this virus. So we really need to understand what we're dealing with and maybe not make these types of callous statements. Now, it's one thing to hear a New York Times reporter say something like that. But it's a completely different thing to hear uh, Democratic leadership make similar arguments. And here's Chuck Schumer doing exactly that. What is one of the biggest problems facing us in the next month, as the speaker mentioned? Schools. Opening up the schools safely. If you don't open up the schools, you're going to hurt the economy significantly because lots of people can't go to work. So, Nando. That's really what's at play <laughs> beneath the surface. Schumer said it out loud. You know, we just want to open the school so we can free up these people. We, we got to free up the human capital. Yeah. Okay. You got to unleash got to, the power of human yeah. capital. Yes. Yeah. It's terrifying. It's one of those issues where we're seeing a confluence between the right and the liberal kind of spectrum of our politics. The Democratic leadership, the most influential liberal intellectual right now, probably, is Nicole Hannah-Jones. She's on board. The conservatives are on board. So that means it's probably going to happen unless there is this wave of teacher strikes, which has kind of been starting. You know, like the Chicago teachers went on strike and within hours reversed, they reversed their position on whether they're going to reopen the schools or not. You know, just shows that strikes work, that labor militancy is the way to get the goods. But... Yeah, I mean, it, it is really terrifying to see just, again, our opposition party just completely laying down at the feet of 
the party in power, the right wing party in power. I mean, they just they love to do that. It's their favorite thing to do. They do not do anything to oppose these people in any meaningful way. It is just absolute malpractice. We've seen that our nation is just not capable of dealing with the most basic civil society functions to control this pandemic. And to just reopen the schools, millions of kids who, I mean, it's not just the kids who could get sick, they could transmit it to their parents. It's just, it's going to cause like a chaos that's unimaginable. We are just not equipped to do it. So instead of us like re-advocating to reopen the schools, like we need more relief for people to stay home. That's what we need. We need relief for people to stay Mm -hmm. home. We can do it. It's just, they don't want to do it. Like you said. They don't want to do it. Unleash the power of human capital to go back to work. It's disgusting. Yeah, that's a, you're, it is disgusting. And, and it, that economic relief is something that Congress is obviously unwilling to really provide. I mean, enough relief for people to safely and comfortably stay home. Yeah. And even the head of the Minneapolis Federal Reserve recently said, if all you care about is the economy, right? You don't care about the human lives, but you want the economy to rebound. The best way to do it is to shut everything down, not like in a half-assed way like we did a few months ago, but to really shut things down. That's the only way you're going to slow the spread of this infection, of this virus, and then you got to do the contact tracing. But, you know, the New York Times of all places recently published this piece that compared the United States to pretty much every other affluent country. And really, we are in a uniquely terrible position to deal with a pandemic because what's been drilled in people's heads over and over again is that what makes this country great is individualism, right? And so people think that any type of collective effort is some sort of terrible, dystopian violation of their rights. So you can't get people on the same page. And then on top of it, of course, we have this whole healthcare system that functions under a profit motive. We don't have enough hospital beds, and that's not an accident. We don't have enough hospital beds because, you know, private hospitals have done the cost-benefit analysis and decided, hey, why are we going to have empty hospital beds? We got to make sure we have the exact number of beds that are constantly full. So that's what we're dealing with. And I think, like, it's very tempting, and it's it's obviously that Trump has been horrible in his response to the coronavirus. I mean, there's just, there's no way getting, getting around it. But like, I just think that the deeper institutional structures of this country are also just incapable of dealing with something like this, even if Barack Obama was in power or Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden, you know, like that, they, they just, mm-hmm. the, the, the structures of civil society to deal with something like this have been decimated with decades of neoliberalism and austerity, that even if someone was kind of like, imagine just a more competent person um, at the helm, it would be, it would still be an absolute nightmare to coordinate the entire response to the pandemic. And it's just, again, it's, this is like a matter of life or death. This is not something to mess around with. So like the the trade, the quote unquote trade-offs are absolutely horrifying. Like we, it's insane that people are talking about reopening schools like we're just nowhere near nowhere near there
We've just heard clips today, starting with All In with Chris Hayes, explaining that Trump is the last person we should be trusting with the safety of our kids. Democracy Now! spoke with Dr. Lena Wynn about whether it's possible to reopen schools safely. The Intercept highlighted the voices of protesting teachers in Washington, D.C. The Tom Hartman program pointed to the experience of Israel reopening their schools as a cautionary tale. The David Pakman Show analyzed the argument for and against sending kids back to school. On the media looked at the financial motivations of universities as they make their decisions about inviting students back to campus. And finally, we just heard a discussion on Jacobin Radio Weekends about the structures of America's civil society that make it particularly unsuited to deal with a major collective problem. Members will be hearing additional clips about alternative ideas being uh, proposed, such as so-called learning pods and the potential impact there could be to uh, heighten inequalities. Surprise, surprise, if uh, measures like that are carried out. To hear that and all of our bonus content, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And now we'll hear from you. Hi, this is Kate Robbins, Spokane, Washington, and I'm just commenting that mail-in ballots in Washington no longer require a stamp. They haven't for a few years now, so we can mail it without a stamp. First class goes in first class postage if they mail it, but everybody's going to try to use the drop box this year, and uh, thank you for your wonderful podcast. Hello, Jay. This is V from Central New York. It has been a long time, my friend, but I have been still listening. Unfortunately, life has been, uh, or maybe even fortunately, life has been uh, very busy as the job that I am working at is considered or has been considered essential these last few months. And we have been very swamped. So it's been quite a tiring last few months. However, one of the great bright spots that has helped me move through those very long days has been your great podcast. So I thank you for the work that you have continued to do during this pandemic. I am calling today about episode 1358, how a system of power defends itself, a case study. Years ago, I want to say about eight or nine years ago, you pondered what it would take for there to be a drastic political shift in this country. And as you rightfully pointed out at the time, you were not certain exactly what would have to happen for people to finally stand up and to um, want to move en masse towards a better future. And actually, now that I think about it, this was prior to uh, Barack Obama's ascension. So it was uh, a few more years than 10. Anyway, I believe we are in one of those decades where a mass movement of dynamic proportions will shift the direction in which this society is headed. This episode, as with several of the uh, episodes you have produced over the last three years, is a benchmark episode. It's one 
which I implore you to pin somewhere on your website in order to direct people to it immediately because it is something that most people do not consider. Not only do they not consider it, but the idea of a system protecting itself is actually quite foreign to most ordinary people. Here, I want to be deliberate in my words. The more educated you are, I believe, the more you understand to some degree that systems protect themselves. The less educated, meaning the less time you spend in school, the more you may be aware of it, but you may not be able to articulate it. And I find this problem in existence with a lot of people who I talk to. In episodes such as uh, 1358 shatters the boundary between acknowledgement and awareness. It's a very important episode. Please keep up the great work and I will keep listening. Peace. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our new research assistants, Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton, for joining the team and for all of the work they've been doing. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called in to the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply leave a voice memo by email or simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Since V brought it up. I just wanted to mention this quick little thing because I I think I told the members about this a few weeks ago, but in one of the most ironic articles I've ever seen published, if you recall the episode that uh, V is talking about, the, the way systems of power defend themselves and the New York City Education Council meeting and the primary target of my frustration in all of that was uh, this uh, journalist named Yasha Monk. He writes for The Atlantic and does other things, and he has a podcast that I've used in the past. He usually focuses on authoritarianism, but in this instance, he veered over into racism and, in my opinion, completely fell on his face, describing a couple of aspects of, of racism completely wrongly. So, he, he, you know, he goes on to pile on with this emerging uh, internet mob, which is attacking people on this education council meeting for reasons that I lay out in a lot of detail as to why I think the accusations against them are basically wrong or if not 100% wrong, like 95% wrong and, you know, just really, really overblown and, and people got sort of dragged through the mud on the internet for a few weeks. And, and frankly, like the story's not quite over. People keep bringing it up and talking about it. So it just kind of keeps happening in, in a cyclical sort of way. So as I said, in, in one of the most ironic articles I've ever seen published, this was published about uh, five days after my episode, which means probably like two to three weeks or so after the Yasha Monk podcast episode that I was criticizing. Yasha Monk on his new platform, which seems to be doing quite well 
for him and those involved, wrote this article, Stand Up for the Wrongly Accused. Subheadline, It's tempting to pick and choose whom to defend against the social media mob. A timeless essay by George Orwell reminds us why that is a mistake. And the article begins... Among George Orwell's many essays, the one for which I have the greatest respect may seem, at first glance, an unlikely choice. It is a defense of P.G. Wodehouse, written in the dying days of World War II, against the charge that he was a fascist sympathizer. Unquote. And, and so then the article goes on to describe how, look, like, P.G. Wodehouse worked with the Nazis, but maybe he was just sort of clueless and selfish and, you know, going along. And so the accusation that he was, you know, an active participant and a secret fascist was, was unfounded. That's George Orwell's argument. And so Yasha Monk thinks that this is great, and I don't have any particular reason to, to disagree. And so he concludes with this flourish, encouraging everyone to be as thoughtful and nuanced in their criticisms and to not accidentally tar people with the, with the wrong kind of brush because of what's at stake. So continuing the article all the way at the very end, he concludes, For what is at stake when somebody is falsely accused is not only the fate of that particular individual, it is the maintenance of a principle without which an honest intellectual life would quickly become impossible, the obligation to stand up for the wrongly accused, even, or perhaps especially when they are imperfect, remains as important now as it has ever been. So I shall do my best to live up to the example Orwell set in much more perilous times, and I hope that you will too. Unquote. So I think you understand my point as to why I think that was profoundly ironic for him to publish that uh, in, in the wake of... I mean, I, I, I tried to, you know, tweet... My show, Adam, I don't have any contact with Yasha Monk or any way to, to get in touch with him. And uh, to be honest, I didn't try that hard, but I did tweet at him to, uh, you know, encourage him to take a listen to the episode. And uh, I have no sense whether he did or not. But in the wake of all that, he published that article. So that's uh, that's where that story stands uh, with him, at least. And just a quick uh, wrap up. I want to let you know how things went during my working staycation. There was a lot of work and there was a lot of staying put. There was not a lot of cation happening whatsoever. Frankly, I was working more than I usually do, you know, 10, 12 hour days, something like that. I was very intent on getting some, some tasks finished. And it didn't quite get there, but I made huge progress. The primary one of which is that, uh, you know, as I mentioned, we have two new researchers. We've been without research help for the entirety or, or near entirety of the last several months since lockdown. So welcome, uh, a very hearty welcome to Dion and Aaron for joining in. This episode today is is the fruits of their first efforts. So I'm very excited about that. Got them hired and onboarded and, and all of that. So that was a huge one. And uh, which means that we can go back to our old regular schedule. I'm out of, I think, pandemic brain. I think I can 
function pretty normally and think sort of clearly. That one's still out for debate, though, because I've been working so hard that I can't think clearly. But I think it's because of that and not because of pandemic. So that, that's we're just we're going to call that progress. And hopefully, as as the researchers really hit their stride and take some workload off me, then then things will really smooth out. So we're we're going back to our two episodes weekly schedule. That's the goal. We're going to see how that goes. And then the, there are other things that I made huge progress on, and I'm just not quite ready to announce it yet. But stay tuned for that very very soon. Uh, there there will be more more things coming, which which I think you will recognize as not technically meeting the definition of exciting, but important to improving the financial health of the show. And, and that's um, that's something I think everyone can can recognize as important. So uh, I'll, I'll leave it there for now and fill you in on more details as time goes on. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Thanks especially to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestoftheleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you now again twice weekly. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. Mm-hmm.